Good morning. Let's pray together. Lord, your word tells us in Isaiah 66, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Father, uh, we want to be people like that. We want to be before you humble, contrite in spirit, people who tremble at your word. And as, as we take up this section of the Sermon on the Mount this morning, I pray that it would be with a measure of trembling, because these are hard words, difficult to implement because they are so contrary to the culture that we are surrounded by. And yet as we desire to live out our, our, our life of faith, help us to trust in you so that we can live these words out as we live them by faith, trusting that you will take care of the things that others perhaps would encourage us to just go ahead and do ourselves. And so, Lord, we trust in you, increase our trust in you, and help us to apply your word in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've probably heard the old saying, don't get mad, get even, and that is the way a lot of people live in our culture. We're surrounded by it all the time. The trouble with that approach is that sometimes even doesn't seem very satisfying, right? We don't want just to get even. We want to get ahead. We want to punish. We want to make the person who hurt us never again think about hurting us. And when that happens, what it does is it feeds a cycle of retaliation that escalates and can go right out of control. To the rescue comes lex talionis, the law of retaliation, the oldest law in the world. It dates back to the time of Hammurabi, who lived between the time of Abraham and the time of Moses, long time back. It's cited several times in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus chapter 24, and as was read earlier, Deuteronomy chapter 19. And it is what Jesus cites in verse 38 here in Matthew 5, where he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There are a couple of things about the law of retaliation, though, that we need to understand before we plunge into what Jesus had to say about it. And the first is that it wasn't established to make sure that people who did wrong got what was coming to them. That's not why it was given. It was given to set a limit on retaliation. It wasn't to make sure somebody got what they deserved. It, it was to set a limit on what you could do to them. And that prevented people from escalating conflict. So if someone blinded you, for instance, the most that could be done to him was he'd be blinded. Be the most, nothing more. You couldn't escalate beyond that because that kind of escalation leads inevitably to a blood feud. The second thing we need to know about it is it was not given to individuals. It was given to judges. 
It was administered in a court of law rather than by personal revenge. Only the courts could settle these things. And they did it not by blinding people, but by assessing the damages done like we do today in our courts. What's the value of an eye, for instance? They would assess that and fine the person accordingly. There is an entire section of the Mishnah, a written version of the oral tradition, that's dedicated to this. So it wasn't established to make sure that people who did wrong got what was coming to them. It was established to set a limit on retaliation. And it was also not given to individuals, but to judges and courts. So the law of retaliation didn't establish a right to revenge. It set a limit for revenge, and it kept conflict from escalating. It was a good thing, and it still serves as the basis for our laws today. And it does its job pretty well. It restrains evil. It holds it back. It keeps it from escalating. But restraining evil isn't all that Jesus is interested in. He's interested in overcoming evil. The Apostle Paul uh, picked up on this in Romans chapter 12. Let's just touch on it again. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I believe overcoming evil with good takes a couple of things, both of which are themes that run throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And the first is living by faith. You can't do the things that Jesus is calling us to do here if you're not living by faith. It won't work. Uh, you have to see beyond the present situation. You have to see the big picture, see the eternal picture in order to do the things that Jesus is calling us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Part of why we don't need to retaliate is that God will deal with all injustice in the end. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So it is his to avenge. We need to live by faith that he will take care of it, and we don't need to do it ourselves. The second theme that allows us to do these things is the theme of giving grace. We live by faith and we give grace. Grace is favor shown to the undeserving. We recognize when we come to faith in Christ that, that we are undeserving of his sacrifice for us. That is what grace is all about. And being recipients of grace, we need also then to be transmitters of grace, to give grace to others that we have received from Christ. And when we'll do those two things, when we live by faith and give grace, we will live out the Sermon on the Mount. 
And the more we live by faith and give grace, the more we will live out the Sermon on the Mount. But if we try to live out the Sermon on the Mount apart from faith and grace, it will become a new legalism. And we will be enslaved by it, trying to measure up to what Jesus says here. But for the person who has experienced the grace of God and who lives by faith, the Sermon on the Mount becomes a description of life in Christ. Let's take a look at these verses in the Sermon on the Mount together. Starting at verse 38 of Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus in this section gives us one principle and four applications. And the principle is this. Don't resist an evil person. Don't resist an evil person. ESV says, don't resist the one who is evil. So who is that? Who is the evil person that we're thinking of? Um, If you look up to uh, verse 37, the the preceding section, what Jesus ends with this, we looked at last week, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He's speaking about the evil one. He's speaking about the devil But here he's speaking about a different person. How do we know that? Well, a few things. One is Jesus identifies the devil as our enemy. He resisted him when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. And he encourages us to stand strong and resist him as well. So Jesus specifically identifies him as the one we need to resist. And so he wouldn't be contradicting that here when he says, do not resist Uh, an evil person, the one who is evil. Other New Testament writers also tell us to resist the devil. Ephesians 6, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him! Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And James, in James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So Jesus tells us to resist him. Other New Testament writers tell us to resist him. There's one other little clue in the passage itself, just a little detail of the Greek. The one who is evil is a masculine noun. If we were talking about not resisting evil, it would be a neuter noun. Just a little bitty difference in the word in Greek, but it points specifically to a person, not a force of evil and not the devil. Speaking about someone who treats us wrongly, someone who treats us unjustly. So, Jesus tells us not to resist that sort of person. Don't resist the one who treats you unjustly. Those are hard words to hear. 
harder to implement. It's an important distinction, though, that he says that we're not to uh, resist the one who mistreats us personally. Uh, that's, that's an important distinction. This is all personal. If you're the sort of person who likes to underline in your Bible or circle words, if you circled all of the times you or your occurs in this brief passage, you would have nine circles on your page. Nine of them. This is all about you personally that he's speaking. And if you restrict it simply to the word you, dealing with personal affront, personal challenge, uh, it shows up five times. Someone who slaps you, someone who wishes to sue you, someone who forces you to carry his load, someone who begs from you, someone who wishes to borrow from you. It all has to do with you and your rights. Jesus says, we don't need to stand up for our rights. In fact, he says, we can lay them down. Before we dig into that, there is an important distinction, though, that we need to deal with. Since this is about injustice done to us personally, what do we do when we see the rights of others being trampled? Um, it's an important question. What do you do if someone attacks a member of your family? Do you defend them, or do you just kind of watch? Can a Christian serve as a police officer? Can a Christian serve in the military? Does this passage suggest we should all become pacifists? Some have taken it that way. Luther responded to that question by making an important distinction between person and office. Person and office. In our person, we don't resist an evildoer, the person who treats us unjustly. But in our office, say as citizen, uh, we need to resist evil wherever and whenever it shows up. Distinction between person and office. I think it's an important distinction to make. So say somebody breaks into your house at night and you catch him. You may sit him down at your table and give him a meal and uh, give him something to drink, but you're still going to call the police because that is your duty in your office as citizen. He's broken the law. So the passage speaks to us not in terms of our office, but in terms of our person. And it tells us to lay down personal rights, not to give up the laws of the land that restrain evil. And this passage doesn't apply uniformly to everyone. This passage is meant for believers, people who've put their trust in Christ, people who are citizens of the kingdom of God, who've surrendered their lives to Jesus, the one who laid down his rights and laid down his life for us. Paul uh, spoke to this idea in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, where he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice how that section started. Have this mind among yourselves. Other versions say, have this mind in you. Other versions say, um, in your mind, you should be thinking the same as Christ, who humbled himself, laid aside his rights. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said this, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus, who laid down his rights and laid down his life, calls us to follow him by laying our rights down as well. So the law of retaliation applies to the world at large, institutions and unbelievers, but Jesus here is talking to redeemed people, followers of his, and he's calling us as his followers to go beyond the law of retaliation. So the principle is this, don't resist an evil person, a person who treats you unjustly. If I were to frame it another way, I'd say this, citizens of the kingdom don't need to stand up for our rights. We can lay our rights down as Jesus did. The culture sees the issue as one of defending your rights. Jesus sees the issue in terms of giving up your rights. And he gives us four applications. The first one has to do with the person who insults you. Verse 39. Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. How many of you saw the slap heard around the world a few weeks ago? You know what I'm talking about, right? Um, Will Smith to Chris Rock. Chris Rock uh, made a joke of Will Smith's wife, and so Will Smith came up and, and slapped him, right? So I, I need a volunteer. Now, who, who saw this again? Let's see. Les, come on up for a sec here. I'm going to take my microphone off my ear because we're going to need a, a cheek. All right, so is this one on? Let's see, we're on. All right. What did I volunteer for? <laughs> you, you, you volunteered to do something in slow motion. Please. <laughs> okay. So you're Will Smith. I'm Chris Rock. I've just insulted your wife. And I'm standing here up on the stage with my hands behind my back. Did you notice that he did that? It was kind of this royal position. Wow. Well done. Well done. Thanks. Now, hang on, hang on. Not done yet. So, which cheek did Will Smith hit, right or left? Left. Left. Aha. All right. So, Jesus says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What would it take for you to strike me on my right cheek? I'd have to use my left hand. Okay. You'd have to use your left hand. In the Middle East... The left hand is never offered 
to somebody else. It is used for some pretty menial tasks, and you never offer your left hand. So to hit someone with your left hand would be an insult upon an insult. What might be the other option for you if you wanted to strike my right cheek? Um, my other, um, Oh, if I use my right hand and slapped you on the left cheek again. Right oh, cheek. oh, right cheek, oh, yes. What would it be? What would it look like? <laughs> Beautiful. Let's give him a hand. This is great. So to strike someone on the right cheek is a, is a deliberate insult. You're, you're either using your left hand or you're backhanding the person. It is a calculated insult that Jesus is talking about here. Now I'm going to put my mic back on. All right, here we go. So that's the situation Jesus is describing in this first illustration. It's a deliberate insult. What do you do when someone deliberately insults you? The culture's expectation for someone who insults you, the, the answer you'd get if you were asking someone on the street is, strike back, right? It's the law of retaliation. If they hit you on the right cheek, uh, they have just given you a very deliberate insult, and you ought to give them something in kind. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, law of retaliation. And Jesus, on the other hand, says, take the insult. Take the insult. Don't retaliate. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary statesman to China, went there and, and really incarnated his ministry to live among the Chinese and to lead them to Christ. He, he wore Chinese clothing. He, he learned the language. He even grew his beard and his hair, wore a little pigtail and all that, so that he could relate to them. And so he looked pretty much like an ordinary Chinese person if you weren't looking straight on in his face. So one day, he was on a riverbank and hailed a boat to help take him across the river. And just as soon as the boat hit shore, a Chinese guy uh, pushed him aside, thinking he was a fellow Chinese guy, and, uh, and started to get in the boat. But the boatman refused to let him in and said, no, no, he is the one who hailed the boat. Taylor picked himself up off the ground and invited the guy to join him in the boat and share the ride to the opposite shore. And along the way, he was able to explain why he took the insult, to explain why he didn't retaliate that it was because Christ laid down his rights for us and asks us to lay down our rights for others. Now, what is it that the person who insults you is trying to take from you at that moment? He's trying to take your honor. Maybe he's trying to take a piece of your self-worth. But what he doesn't know is that your self-worth as a follower of Christ is settled once and for all. It's not in question. You are a child of the king. If you are wondering about your identity, if you're in Christ, look at Ephesians chapter 1 and see what he has done for you. Your self-worth is settled. You have greater honor coming as you live by faith. The Beatitudes congratulate those 
who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who are merciful, who are peacemakers, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So when someone insults us, we are in a position to show that the matter of our self-worth is settled forever in the courts of heaven. The second illustration Jesus gives is of the person who takes advantage of you. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, someone, in other words, wants to take you to court and sue the shirt right off your back. Now, in a Jewish court, you could sue a man for his shirt. You could do that, but you couldn't take his coat. You couldn't take his cloak because he needed it to cover himself at night. That was their blanket for sleeping under at night. And if you did take his cloak, you had to return it to him every evening, which was a big hassle, so you never did it. Jesus says, go ahead and give him your cloak. What's our culture's expectation when someone wants to sue you? One call, that's all, right? You mount your legal defense, you stand up for your rights, you cling to your, stu- your stuff, you, you resist, you retaliate. That's the cultural expectation. But on the other hand, Jesus says, give him more. Give him more than he's asking for. Don't retaliate. A friend of mine used to say, would you like fries with that? Uh, he used to manage McDonald's, and he was trained, and he trained his employees that if you're ever held up when you're at the register... You give him what's in the register, and you ask him, would you like fries with that? And so he just kind of used that in all kinds of situations. You know, if, if, if we were riding to school together, and, and uh, I happened to say something that, that uh, was offensive to him, he'd say, would you like fries with that? Like, oh, I'm sorry. What is the person who takes advantage of you trying to get from you in that moment? trying to get your possessions, right? Trying to sue you, trying to get the shirt off your back. But what he doesn't know is you have better possessions. In Christ, you have better possessions. Hebrews 10, verse 34, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What a statement. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So when someone wants to take advantage of us, we are in a position to show that person we have better and lasting possessions. We have something more in Christ. The third illustration Jesus gives is the person who is in a position of power over you. Verse 41, if someone, anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So in the time of Jesus, Jews in Palestine were living under Roman occupation. The Romans had power over them as a conquered people, and they used it. A Roman soldier could interrupt whatever you were doing, didn't matter, and make you carry his equipment for one mile. The limit was one mile, and he didn't have to say, please. He could just come and say, you, you're carrying my pack. Didn't matter if you were hard at work making a living for your family. Didn't matter if you were doing something with your family in that moment. They were now in charge of your time. So you'd have to drop what you were doing and carry their stuff for a mile. Now, the average person walks three to four 
miles uh, in an hour. And so we're talking about the investment of at least a half hour by the time you've gone to where the mile marker is and have come back to do what you were interrupted from doing. So you're talking about at least a half hour interruption. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't appreciate a half hour interruption of something I'm doing by someone who just wants to use me, right? That's just, that's just going to chafe. But that's the situation Jesus is describing. And what is the culture's expectation when someone wants to use you and has a power position over you? Cultural expectation is you resist. You try to get out of it. And if you can't get out of it, you find some sneaky way to retaliate afterwards. Jesus, on the other hand, says, use that situation to show them what following Christ looks like. Show what it means to follow me. 1 Peter chapter 2, um, Peter puts it this way, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. An unjust master who has positional authority over you and can make you do whatever he wants you to do. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's the example. The one who bore unjust treatment. What's the person trying to get from you in that moment? Trying to get your time, your labor, maybe a piece of your dignity. And he's doing it because he can, because he's got positional authority over you. And what he doesn't know is that unjust suffering points to Christ. When you are suffering unjustly, you are following in his steps and sharing a witness of Christ. When someone wants to use their power position over us, we are in a position to point to Christ by following in his steps. The fourth illustration Jesus gives is the person who won't repay you, verse 42 Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, this calls for some wisdom. We all know that it's not wise or even helpful to give cash to someone who may have a good story, but who we know is going to go out and spend that cash uh, on something that will be harmful to him. Um, Paul showed this wisdom in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 when he said, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. It's interesting that that he follows this admonition not to give to someone who isn't, isn't willing to work with another admonition to not grow weary in doing good. In other words, we're not doing harm when we turn such a person down. We're doing good, ultimately. It may be hard for that person to hear, but we're doing 
Good. And we have some help from Jesus himself at this point. In Luke chapter 6, he says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is um, part of Luke's um, Sermon on the Plain, uh, his rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And it picks up at this very point in the Sermon on the Mount. The idea is that our tendency is to lend money only to those who can repay us. And Jesus says, give it to those who can't. So what's our culture's expectation when someone won't repay you? Culture's expectation is then you don't lend them money. You don't give them money. You cling to your resources. But Jesus, on the other hand, says, give and have no expectation of repayment. What's the person trying to take from you at that moment? Your money. Just your money. What he doesn't know is you have riches beyond what's in your wallet. You have riches in heaven We'll talk about that in a few weeks when we get to that portion of the Sermon on the Mount. You have riches in heaven. You're just sending some up right now. So when someone wants to take our money, we're in a position to show where our riches lie. And again, it's a witness to Christ in our lives. In each of these four cases, the expectation of our culture is we will stand up for our rights. But Jesus is so radically countercultural, he asks us instead to lay them down. We looked at Philippians 2 and saw that he did that for us, and he asks us to think that way ourselves. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus suffered unjustly and left us an example that we might follow in his steps. And here's, here's the bottom line. When we will do that, we get the culture's attention. It is so counterculture. It is so unexpected. We get the culture's attention. In each case, there is something this evil person, this person who's treating us unjustly, doesn't know. And we have in that moment an opportunity to show them. First Peter Chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense, NIV says, to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So the question is, is anybody asking? Is anybody asking? You're so different. What is it about you that makes you so different? Why didn't you return evil for evil? Are we living differently enough from the culture that we get the culture's attention, that people are asking, and that we get an opportunity to share the reason for our hope? Our natural inclination 
is to stand up for our rights. We believe we have the right not to be insulted. We believe we have the right not to be taken advantage of. We believe we have the right not to be ripped off. And those are all really painful experiences when they come our way. I don't want to minimize that. It's really hard not to want to retaliate. But when we will lay down our rights rather than standing up for them, we follow in the steps of the Lord Jesus who calls us to imitate him. And beyond that, we get the opportunity to point to him who laid down all of his rights for us. We can hold loosely to the things that others cling to our honor, our possessions, our time, our rights, because we have Christ. In him, we have all we need. Would you join me in prayer? Father, when our culture encourages us to follow what it does, help us to hear the call of Christ all the more clearly to follow what he did and what he asks us to do. We recognize, Father, that we can only do this by faith, that we can only do this as people who have received grace from you, undeserved favor, and who then can live in that grace and show that grace to others and trust that you will deal with the injustices in your time So help us, Father, to live by faith and to give grace and to be the kind of people that give glory to you by the lives we lead. In Jesus' name, amen.